Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Prelude. When I started the Run Run Live podcast back in July of 1857, it was a different world. I know it hasn't been 150 years, but it does seem like a long time ago, doesn't it? Now, here we are at the sharp and dangerous blade edge of another season or edition or chapter or whatever you want to call it. Now, I chose the meme of running plus living, not to show the dichotomy or separation of the two, but to highlight the synergy and union of them. And when you combine endurance sports into your life, one plus one equals three. And that really was the message I was trying to get across. Running has opened up worlds for me. I'd like to say it has transformed me, but that isn't quite the right way to put it. I wasn't a 300-pound diabetic asthmatic on the edge of physical extinction. I was a normal family guy, stuck instead in the modern corporate grind wheel of existence. Maybe that's a form of existential extinction. Running didn't so much transform me as it enabled me to realize my own potential. It snapped the strictures that tied me down and allowed me to transcend. It broke my frame of reference and allowed my light to leak out into the world in a new way. And that's why, my friends, I still want to do this. I want you to come see the light. We live in a time of great epidemic, and and I don't mean Ebola or AIDS. I mean the epidemic of people not believing in themselves, not believing in positive change, and not trying because they are constantly being told that they can't make a difference or they can't do something. You can make a difference. You can make a difference in your own life and in the lives of others by what you do, what you say, and how you approach your life. I can make a difference, too, for you and for me and for those tiny humans that I brought into this world. And frankly, I don't care if you run or jog or walk or wriggle like a snake to Elvis Love songs. What concerns me is that you do nothing, that you think small, that you feel like you have nothing to give, that it has all been done that you're not smart enough, not fast enough, not rich enough, or not talented enough to make a difference in this world of ours. What scares me is that you're afraid to try. If all you can offer is a smile or a hug, then please, for God's sake, give it today, give it now, because that is a tremendous gift that is in short supply. 90% of my days go by without either. What can I give? What can Run Run Live give? What small stone can we toss into the shimmering pool of humanity? What ripples can we make? For this version of the Run Run Live podcast, we will continue in mostly the same vein as version 3. I'll structure it to fit into my favorite less-than-one-hour envelope, 
I'll retain the 20-minute-plus interview with someone who can show us the achievement of honest synergy. I'm going to move the running tips segment to the front half of the show and try to make it useful to you. Likewise, I'll retain the life skills segment that I think many people like, and I'll move that to the back half. I'll keep up the intro and the outro comments, not that you care so much about what is going on in my life, but just some context and frame and storytelling to glue it all together. And I'm not going to drop in any more music like I threatened to do, even though I can't for the life of me understand why some of you apparently hate punk rock and ska. That's it. That's the bottom line. No big changes, just a little shuffling. It'll be jarring at first, but you'll get used to it. Then why would I pause and take this time to ponder a new format if I'm not going to change it a lot? Well, this topic of pondering, this is one that deserves more ink. But in short, because I believe in the power of introspection, at some point as we draw into the new year, you should pause for introspection in your life and goals and direction as well. It can ignite epiphanies. I reserve the right to change my mind. (laughs) I reserve the right to change your mind as well. Are you ready to get out there? Let's go. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast. This would be episode 4-301. My name is Chris, actually Christopher, which, if you want to continue our discussion of morphemes, is Greek for Christ carrier. And I've missed you. I've missed you terribly. Seems like ages since we've chatted. What have I been up to? Well, there's so much that it's really hard to summarize. But let me try. On the life front, well, I quit my job, left my family, and moved to a 50-acre ranch in Pioneer, Kansas, to raise yaks full-time. It's a peaceful plot of land amongst the industrial farm straddling Spring Creek. I got myself 50 head of good breeding yaks. The running is good, too, and I've constructed some interesting trails, but there aren't a whole lot of hills. The professional hitman business was fairly frantic through the fall, so I spent a lot of time on the road. Unfortunately, while I was gone, the yaks went feral, and now I have to be very careful because they've organized and plotted attacks against me when I leave the house. It can be startling when you're lost in the peaceful reverie of a long run and one of those crazed, shaggy-headed beasts comes crashing out of the alfalfa at you. Yak attack. Yak attack would be the good name for a band, wouldn't it? But, That's all personal fluff and stuff. You don't care about that. On the running side, I've just been working on maintaining my base and staying healthy since my 15 minutes of fame at the New York City Marathon. I tried an experiment a couple weeks ago to see if I could run for an hour or more, seven days straight. So like, you know, six, seven, eight miles a day for every day for seven days just to see if I could take the load. And the runs felt pretty good. But my old and angry nemesis, the plantar fasciitis, flared up by day five, and I aborted that flight of fancy. Kudos to me for being able to set that quest aside and not hurt myself. I've been logging most of my runs in the woods with Buddy, the old wonder dog, including a nice nighttime headlamp run after the snowstorm for an hour and a half the day after Thanksgiving. And I've got some good bass, and I'm not injured. We're going to talk a bit about running in the snow in the first bit of today's episode. But poor Buddy, he was pretty beat up by that run. He's definitely slowing down. He was standing at the top of the stairs looking at them the way I look at them the day after a hard marathon. But he still gets pissed off if I don't take him. I won't take him on the road anymore, only the trails off leash so he can pace himself. You know, if the hikers want to yell at me for having him off leash, they can bite me. That dog is 80 years old and still gets up and gets after it like a pro. They should be so lucky when they're his age. The other big adventure I've had this fall is around my own advancing decrepitude. I know, I know, it's all relative. You're rolling your eyes. Here's this running geek who does back-to-back marathons in October, and I'm complaining about fitness and performance. Well, the truth is, 
I haven't been able to muster a qualifying race since, I think, Boston 2011. And that's a long time ago. I'm still looking for race fitness uh, since taking that 18 months or so off with the plantar fasciitis. This fall, I've taken the time to go back and schedule all my general maintenance and upkeep appointments. I got the physical, I had my blood work done, I got my eyes checked, basically just going through and checking the tire pressure and the oil. Since I'm past the half-century mark, my doctor scheduled me for a a uh, colonoscopy, my first colonoscopy, which is kind of a funny story. So meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, I've been kind of watching my heart rate training, and it's been wigging out a little bit on long run hard efforts. So I asked uh, my GP, my doctor, Dr. Schlemack, to set me up with a cardio, cardio appointment as well. Not because there's anything overtly wrong, just to make sure, you know, I don't want to go out for a run and not come back. I owe it to the yaks. If the answer is you're old, I'm okay with that. I just want to be safe. Which plays into today's interview with Dave McGilvery, race director of the Boston Marathon and so many other wonderful adventures. He's going to talk to us today about his adventure with heart disease. I spent a week prepping for this colonoscopy, which is fairly miserable and involves a diet that is antithetical to what I'm used to, and then slamming a variety of laxatives in large doses. They want your colon to be squeaky clean when they go in there with that camera on a stick. Must be like a GoPro, huh? In the hospital, lying naked on a gurney, waiting for the anesthesiologist, I'm a bit nervous. My resting heart rate, as you know, is normally around 40 beats a minute. And since I'm nervous, I start doing some breathing meditation. And my heart rate drops to 34 to 35 beats per minute. And alarms are going off from all the leads they have stuck on me. The anesthesiologist does an EKG. And just to make sure I'm not dying, my heart, they tell me, stops beating for up to two and a half seconds at a time. And I'm like, yeah, so what do you, what do you want it to be? I can control it by thinking about it. And the colon guy, he wants to dive in and go ahead. But the cardiologist on call says, no. So four days of prep, three hours lying around naked in the hospital with leads stuck on me, and they send me home. The irony here, the great irony, is that I was by far the healthiest person in that place. I mean, they're wheeling by a parade of sick people, but I'm too effing healthy to get a camera stuck up my ass. The world's a crazy place. And since then... I have been to the cardiologist and had the stress test and the echocardiogram that show there's nothing wrong with my heart, but that's kind of true, kind of not true. I think I do still, I still think I have a bit of an arrhythmia in one of my valves when I surge after 40 minutes or so of hard running. That's what my data shows, but they don't want to see my data. Their 20-minute stress test was a nice hill workout, but hardly enough to stimulate the symptoms that I'm seeing. We'll see what the clowns in this circus think when I go back for my consult close to Christmas, but until that point, I'm just going to keep doing what I do, and every day above ground is sacred. Every footfall crunching in the snow, clutching the ground, and driving me forward is a sacred act that I savor. On with the show. Feels good to say that again, huh, my friends? Ciao. Come on, let's have some fun. Let's go for a run. Snow ho ho. I am a New England boy through and through. And for the last 40 years or so, have been cheerily running through the worst that Mother Nature can throw at us. This includes snow, sleet, cold, lack of sunlight, while I will resort to treadmill running if it's convenient, my default setting is to venture out into the teeth of whatever the weather is on any particular day. I don't think you should run and hide indoors at the first hint of snow or cold. I mean, distance running is in part about discomfort, right? And fleeing from discomfort in the form of a blustery day is, to use a technical term, chicken shit. The cold won't kill you. Running on some snow and ice probably won't kill you, you know, either, if you approach it intelligently. You know you're going to be 
out for the most a couple hours in the elements. This isn't enough time to die from hypothermia. It's enough time to get plenty uncomfortable, but you won't die. If we've learned anything as runners, it's that the human body is not a frail vessel. We can take a lot more punishment than we think we can. The other thing I've found is that completing your workouts in adverse conditions makes you stronger on race day. First, because you're ready for whatever weather gets thrown at you when you start the target race. And second, because you build up a mental toughness reserve. It increases your confidence. You think to yourself, eh, I've seen worse. Remember that time we did the hill repeats in the freezing rain at midnight? You gain an I-can-do-anything-I-can-beat-anything attitude that comes in very handy in a race. And for the record, I have raced outside in snowstorms, ice storms, windstorms, below zero temperatures. I don't mean that sissy European zero. I mean real Fahrenheit zero. And I don't mean 5Ks. I mean 16 milers, 30Ks, 20 milers, and marathons. I can think of nothing more entertaining than being able to claim those bragging rights around a particularly hairy day at the races. Those are stories you could tell forever. And that makes you stronger. So what about day-to-day training? What can you do to keep from suffering too much or getting injured as you slip-slide your way out into the darkness? Well, in the old days, when I first started running, there really wasn't any tech clothing. There really wasn't. And I kid you not, we used to run in long johns and cotton sweats. And the trick was to go out really hard the first mile and warm up fast. And then you were okay. So last weekend when I was racing, uh, the temperatures were just about freezing. And the fast guys, they all still wore shorts and singlets because... They were working hard enough to stay warm, and they're only going to be out there for, you know, less than an hour at most. So it still holds true. Once you warm up, you're okay. It's still a valid strategy to push the first, I don't know, 10 minutes or so to get that steam up. As an alternative, you can put your stuff on and do something aerobic like jumping jacks or calisthenics before you venture out into the cold. You want to be warm, but not sweaty. Sweaty in the freezing weather is is bad. The new clothes that we all have now are are really much better at wicking sweat and blocking the wind. Uh, Some folks I know will throw their their running clothes into the dryer for a couple of minutes to heat them up. Toasty. Toasty warm before they put them on and head out into the cold. I don't do that. I do find that the tech clothes are, are good. They're good, but they tend to be lighter than the old sweaters and sweatshirts that we used to run in. And I find they aren't as warm when you first start out, but then they outperform once you do get going. The old advice of dressing in layers is still good. I like to wear items that can be zipped up or down to regulate, especially on a long run where the weather can change over the course of the run. And these days I'm more likely to dress a bit warmer than I used to just because I just don't work as hard. One caution I would have for you is to just consider, if you would, if what you're wearing would be okay if you had to stop running at the halfway point of your planned run and walk home. Would you make it? That's one thing to consider, because I've had to do that before. These days, as I do more heart rate-based training, I'm, I'm hesitant to take off and push that first mile to warm up, so I tend to dress more warmly. I find, and always have found, that the most important elements of clothing to be comfortable in the cold is your hat, your gloves, and of course your shoes. The hat, I think, is the most important. A good thick hat that can be pulled down over the ears will keep the heat from escaping from the top of your head. And these hats can be rolled up if you get hot or even taken off. The winter hat is very important, very versatile. So what about gloves? Well, throughout my training and racing career, I have favorited those cheap cotton gloves. You know, you can find them at any race expo. And I find, for the most part, they will keep my fingers warm and are absorbent for wiping my nose and brow. I haven't had much luck with the technical gloves designed specifically for running. They have those finger patches on them so you can use your touch screen. And they have sweat patches on the back to wipe with. They're technically gifted but fail in one important requirement, keeping your fingers warm. Now, I do have a pair 
of thick wool gloves, like actual gloves you would use to shovel snow. And I'll wear these if it's super cold. I'll wear them if I have a very slow long run scheduled. I tend to carry stuff when I run, like the dog's leash or a water bottle, and this causes my fingers to get pretty cold. One of my concessions <laughs> to getting slower is now I need warmer gloves. Now, there is an actual physical malady called Renault syndrome, where people have chronically cold hands, painfully cold hands, and I have friends with this syndrome, and they run with special insulated gloves and, and those chemical hand warmers. So what about shoes? Well, if you've got a clear trail or a dry road, you can run in cold weather with your regular road shoes. You may notice that the outsoles, the bottom of your shoes, your normal road shoes, that may get hard. They may stiffen up when it drops into the single digits. If you have the opportunity, you can try shoes with a little bit softer or stickier outsole, and they won't get so hard when the temperature drops. I have never experienced it, but some folks get cold toes when running in the winter in their road shoes. If you find this to be a problem for you, there's a product called a toe cap that you can buy or make that is essentially a piece of fabric strapped across the top of the toe box upper to break the wind. And again, I don't have an issue with cold toes, but those runners who suffer from this sometimes will use special insulated socks in the winter. It all depends on what you need. Now, for the ice and snow, this is really where the, the rubber hits the ice, as they say. I've tried most of the alternatives, and I've returned to the simplest solution. I just run in my trail shoes, my normal trail shoes, and I manage the surface conditions with my stride. If you are a do-it-yourself uh, prepper type, you can put the old screws in the bottom of your shoes. Just search the for the tutorials on, on YouTube. And if you want a more commercial approach, you can get Yak Tracks or one of the other similar snow and ice traction products to strap onto your shoes. But, like I said, I've tried them all, and they all work fine for the most part. But I prefer the simpler solution of just putting on my trail shoes and managing the surface conditions with my stride. What do I mean by that? When you are running on winter surface conditions of snow and or ice, the biggest issue is traction, right? And that traction is created by the friction between your foot and the surface. And when there is snow and ice, this friction, specifically the coefficient of friction, it drops, it gets less. And this means that it takes less force to overcome the friction between the surface and your foot, and your foot slips, and you fall, and you crack your head. The screws on the yak tracks and all that stuff, they overcome this by creating more surface area and different angles on the force vectors. And when I say I'm managing my stride, I mean I'm consciously aware of the surface conditions and adjust my foot strike to lessen the forces, especially the shear forces. Shear forces are the sideways forces. If you run in a straight line with good, clean stride, you won't produce a lot of sideways shear force, and you won't fall down and crack your head. It takes practice, and you have to pay attention to the feedback from the ground surface. When you feel the surface getting slippery, you shorten up your stride, and you feel the ground with your foot plant. You use rapid, light foot strikes without too much toe-off, so if one foot slips, the other is not far behind to catch you. If you run aggressively or with a pronounced heel strike, you'll end up on your ass. If you try to plant your foot to take a corner or accelerate, you may also end up on your ass. You just have to run cleanly and feel the ground as you go. You'll naturally go a bit slower, but you'll actually get more of a workout because you're engaging your core by trying to hold your stride tight like that. Perhaps the most challenging thing where I live is the lack of sunlight in the winter. If you need to run in the morning or in the afternoon, chances are you'll be running in the dark. I have no problem going out to run in the dark on the trails or on the roads. I will try to wear some reflective stuff as well as my headlamp. And if I'm on the road, I'll try to wear a blinky light as well if I can find one. No matter how lit up you are, you can't be complacent. People are idiots when they get behind the wheel. Always run into traffic 
facing traffic so that you can watch the cars approach. You'll know when they see you. And if they don't, you need to be prepared to hop into the snowbank. You're not going to win that confrontation, no matter who has the legal right of way. Assume every car doesn't see you, whether it's in the dark or not. In the winter up in New England, we can get a fair amount of snow. And this narrows the roads and gives you less margin for error, especially in the dark. When it warms up during the day, the snowbanks by the side of the road, they melt. And then it cools back down at night, they refreeze and it creates these black ice puddles that reach out like dangerous fingers into the road. And again, you have to pay attention and realize that every dark spot, every shadow on the road could land you on your ass in front of oncoming traffic. So I really have no silver bullet tips for you other than to understand the conditions, be careful, run clean, and pay attention. But don't be afraid of going out into the winter elements. It's very peaceful, and it's quite beautiful at times. I love those night runs when the air is so cold and dry and crisp that it just bites your lungs. And there there are no sounds in the woods other than my breathing and the crunch of snow underfoot. And on a cloudless night, you can see and hear forever. It's really special, and it's quite stunning. If you have to do some sort of speed work or special workout, that's probably not going to work in icy and dark conditions. So I'll try to schedule those more challenging workouts either at lunchtime or take them inside on the treadmill. If I can get out at lunchtime, it helps me because I get some sunlight too, and then I can navigate around the hazards much more easily. Also, many colleges and schools and some gyms will have indoor tracks, and you can use those for some of your more prescriptive workouts if you look around. When you have finished your outdoor winter workouts, try to get out of that wet stuff and into something dry, because sitting around in your wet stuff, that can give you the chills, and it can cause uh, skin problems as well. In summary, I love running in the winter. Whether it's a crisp January night with the full moon glinting off the crusted fields or the white hiss of a February hard snowstorm, it's not the end of the world. It's just another challenge and adventure in our sport that is full of opportunity for challenge and adventure. And now for today's featured interview. I've been watching your uh, your Facebook feed for the last, I don't know, 12 months or so, and you've been running a lot of, a lot of races and taking your shirt off a lot, Dave, so you must feel pretty good about your diet. Uh, taking my shirt off. I think I might have done that once, but be that as it may, <laughs> I normally don't do that. I had to probably take it off to jump in the water, I suppose, but... Uh, yeah, triathlon. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I, I you know, um, as the story goes, back on October 9th of last year, I was diagnosed with um, coronary artery disease to my surprise. And, um, I didn't expect that. Um, I was having some breathing challenges when I went out for my runs and I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out why. And, you know, just sort of, um, eliminated this reason or that reason. Is, is it the heat? Is it the cold? Is it this? Is it that? And I couldn't come up with why this was happening and had all these tests done, stress tests, echocardiograms, EKGs, and, they didn't find anything. And so my cardiologist and I just sort of said, we got to take a closer look. And they did a CAT scan and then an angiogram. And then they found a lot of narrowing of my arteries and blockage and plaque and whatnot. And, you know, it was definitely a combination of the gene pool. It, you know, we have high cholesterol in my family. And, you know, I suppose it was self-inflicted too. Um, not that I was a junk food junkie, but, you know, I participated in the finer <laughs> food in life that, that sort of we all think as a reward that we earn. If we work out hard, we can have that ice cream or we can have the cookies or whatever because we earned it. And and if the furnace is hot enough, it's going to burn anyways. And right. so after 59 years of that, I realized that uh, I was breaking all the rules and um, I needed to clean up my act. And so I just asked my my doctor one question and I said, you know, is this reversible? And he, he said, well, it depends. And I said, depends on what? He said, it depends on the person. And I said, well, well you, you're talking to him. And he says, well, you, yeah. And I said, okay, sign me up. 
you know, I don't need a second opinion. Let's, let's go. And from that very second to this moment, I've, you know, just, just done a transformation. I, I just, and the main thing is, is that I just cut out all the bad stuff. I'm not following any specific diet. I'm not a vegetarian necessarily. I'm not on the vegan diet. I'm not following anyone's books or anything. I'm just, I just know conscientiously, you know, as does most people, let your conscience be your guide, that when you pick something up and you're about to put it in your mouth, you know whether it's good for you or it's bad for you. And I was just making a lot of bad choices. So I just cut out all the bad stuff, you know, whether it's sugar products or whether it's saturated fats or fried food, red meat for me. Uh, I cut out soda. I just cut all that stuff out. I even cut out alcohol, and I didn't have to, but I did because I felt like I needed to punish myself a little bit for doing this for myself. <laughs> so I did, and I just wiped everything out, I just wiped it out on the, right there on the operating table, no more. And um, as a result, and just, just making good choices and eating you know, vegetables and fruits and grains and, you know, all the good stuff. And I've just been eating the good stuff and, and not the bad stuff. And eventually what happened is I started losing weight. Not that I had a real lot to lose, but whatever I had to lose, I lost it. And it didn't happen by design. It just happened by default. And as I was losing the weight, I started feeling better physically so I could get back out there and run. And as I started to run more, that the breathing issue started to go away a little bit. And it just started all feeding on itself and losing more weight, running further, feeling better, losing more weight, running even further, feeling better. And then I just decided, um, you know, that I wanted to have a magnet out there, a target. And that's when I committed to doing the Ironman again for the first time in 25 years. And so there was this carrot out there saying, all right, now you've really committed yourself to this healthy thing. So you got to get up early in the morning. You got to get your workout in. You got to eat right. And you got to rest. You can't break those rules. I always thought that sleep was overrated, and I, you know, I was forcing myself to stay awake yeah. to get more stuff done in a day. And and yeah. I just, I said, I can't do that anymore. I can't do that anymore. So I changed yeah. all that stuff, and the end result was losing 25 pounds, lowering my cholesterol level by over 100 points. I went and had a, a follow-up angiogram about a month and a half ago. And it showed that I had reversed this thing by 40% without medication. Yeah, I'm on a statin only because of the gene pool aspect of it. But the, the diet change really made the difference. And so in my, you know, and I had a stress test taken a couple of weeks ago before I went to Hawaii to give me the green light to go ahead and go. And I passed that with flying colors. And, and here I am. So I just learned a, a lesson that being fit doesn't necessarily mean being healthy. And I think some of the most vulnerable people on the planet are those of us who are fit because we're in a state of denial. You know, we always look at things as being a challenge in pain, not a wanting pain. So we're always trying to pass <laughs> through it when, you know, the good Lord or somebody's telling you, hey, time out, buddy, go, go get checked because something's askew here and you're in denial. You No, no, I, I, can, I, I can deal with this, right? And it just gets worse and worse. And that's why a lot of friends of ours have gone out for a run one day and, and not come home and they didn't get a second chance. And I felt like, you know, I was able to, to sort of get a second chance. And so along those lines, I mean, when this manifested, you said you had a shortness of breathing. Can you go into a little bit of detail on just what the symptoms were? Because one yeah, of the challenges sure. with being an endurance athlete is, you know, we're in pain most of the time anyhow, and we really can't, it's hard to discern when something's wrong and something's actually really wrong, you know? Well, I, I think, just the opposite. I think we're so in tune with our body that um, for me, uh, what happened was I would go out to start a run and I'd run for two minutes and I'd be sort of out of breath or almost feel like, like I was running at altitude. So, you know, running at a pedestrian pace of nine minutes a mile or something for, for the first five minutes of your workout and now you can't breathe is telling me something <laughs> that this isn't normal. Were you wearing a heart, heart monitor? No, 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 I didn't need a hot monitor. I mean, no, I mean, basically I almost felt like something was restricting my, my airwaves, you know what I mean? And so I, I'd walk and then I'd run again and then I'd walk and I'd run again. And this would go on for like 20 minutes. And then finally it would be like, it would open up and I'd be able to now run continuously without getting out of breath or feeling like pain in my chest kind of a thing, you know? And that's why... Yeah. 
for me, I let it go for a long time because I felt like, well, it went away, you know, once I get yeah. into it. So maybe it's just, maybe with all the women I've done, this is what I've done to my internal system, and it's just, it's a new normal, and I just, I have to tolerate it. You're getting old, so it takes a long time to warm up. Yeah, right? yeah, that kind of stuff. That's what I was, I was fooling myself into thinking that that's what it was. So I was becoming complacent and just, you know, accepting it versus, you know, looking into it. But I just, I got to the point where it was so uncomfortable to run and it wasn't fun anymore. And I, I just, something, something's wrong here. You know, and as we get older, like when you turn 50, it, you know, it's normal to have a colonoscopy kind of a thing. And I almost feel like when we turn 50, everyone should have a CAT scan, <laughs> you know, and, and just check the, check the plumbing, check the veins, check the heart, check the arteries. Yeah. Because I, I know, I know, at least in my gut, I know that half of us out there are getting close to the edge. And, right. you know, you just don't want it to be too late. And ever since this happened, you know, there's been some things written up about it in the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or Runner's World or wherever it ended up, you know. And I swear to God, I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people write me saying that they were experiencing something similar. They dismissed it. But when they heard about what I went through, they said, you know, I better go check this. And they went to a hospital, they got checked, and a day and a half later, they walked out with three stents. And yeah. they write me this, and they say, you saved my life. Yeah. If you have that heart problem, that blockage in you, and it manifests in a hard race someplace, you're yeah. going down for the count. It's over. Right? Yeah. See, that's, the, that's the problem with heart disease. You, you, you don't get a second chance that often. You know, it just yeah. takes seconds, and it's over. You know, if you get diagnosed with cancer, at least you might have some time to treat it and have chemo and have this and that and the other thing. With heart disease, boom, you know. And that's why it's interesting because when people go down in our races, I say to them, you know, you are the luckiest person in the world that, that this, as you say, manifested itself in a road race where we have assets to sort of take care of you. Whereas if you were in your backyard chopping wood, you'd be a goner now because there would have been nobody yeah. there to save, save you, right? So, yeah. you know, a lot of times yeah. people, if they go down in a race or God forbid someone does pass in, in a road race, people blame the race and blame exercise and all this. And, and nothing can be further from the truth. You know, they were going down anyways. They had a predisposed condition that walking up the stairs or, you know, like I said, mowing the lawn, they, you know, they were, their time was limited anyways, right? So. I mean, as in, as endurance athletes, so we get we we get a different normal, right? So when we go yeah. in to get a physical, you might have some sort of heart disease, and it won't get picked up. That's what happened we, with me. My other arteries overcompensated; they got stronger to protect me. But again, that's just masking a bigger problem. I mean, so on on, on the one hand, my fitness saved my life. On the other hand, my fitness could have, could have caused my demise, right? Yeah. That, that's why you have to be really sensitive and attentive. I mean, what is so wrong with just going into your doctor and having a physical and getting it all out there? You know, and if you're really having some kind of chest pain or trouble breathing, I'm telling you that's a warning sign. That's not challenging, you know. So Right. And now yeah. my breathing problem after having it for a year and a half and, and trying everything on the planet, to get rid of it, now it's all gone. Yeah, I bet the first thing you tried was training harder, right? Yeah. Well, I can do, I can do this. You know, maybe I'm out of shape, and that's why, you know? And that, that could have ended it for me. So you got the angioplasty to, to clear the blockage? Did, I did not. Right? You did no. not. Did you get a stent? I had did you nothing. get anything? You no, just, nothing. no, nothing. I, I didn't want anything. I wanted to do this on my own. I felt like I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out of it. I didn't have 98% blockage like some people do. I had 70% in one major artery. I had 30, 40, 50 in other arteries. So I wasn't on the edge where I was at risk. No, the doctors would have just done a bypass or a stint right away. I mean, but when they told me what the percentage was, I said, well, I think I can deal with this. Will you, will you let me? Will you give me a chance? You know, and and that's when they said it depends on the person. My, my doctor knows me, and he knows I have willpower, and if I say I'm going to do something, then I'm going to do it. And this one was easy because people think, well, 
was it difficult to change your diet and not have the steak and not have the pint of ice cream and have a beer every now and then? And I said, did it, did, was it difficult? Are you crazy? I was looking up at a monitor and I saw my life flash by me. Was it difficult <laughs> to save my life? No, it wasn't. Yeah. And I yeah. made that change and I don't miss any of that. You know, it's interesting about diet. You know, I'm, I don't eat full meals anymore. I just chip away all day. I graze. I graze yeah. all day long. You know, and I'm never hungry. I'm never hungry, and I'm still at my lowest weight since I ran across America in 78. And I feel stronger and more healthy than I've felt in 20 years. You know, I ran my birthday miles, 60 miles on my birthday. It was the easiest birthday run I've had in 20 years, and obviously the longest. You know, um, and, you know, I, I did Ironman, and, you know, it wasn't always pretty to swim, the bike were challenging, but I never felt in distress. I never felt tired. I never was on the edge of bonking. I crossed the finish line, felt great, woke up the next day, no soreness, no residual, felt fine, you know. So and that's, that's due to the change. So it's basically eating whole foods and, uh, yeah. and in moderation. And, yeah. And also you said you made some lifestyle changes too because one of the – the issues we have is if you're a busy person, you don't really have time to eat or sleep or do some of the other things that take care of you. Mm -hmm. And, and um, some of that heart problem is caused by stress, right? The physical manifestation of stress if you don't eat enough. I mean, I'm sorry, stress. if you don't sleep enough. Right. Stress, rest, and diet. And I changed all of them. And stress is an interesting thing because you bring stress on yourself, you know, and you identify something as being stressful, whereas you can just say, you know, that doesn't mean anything in life. Why am I stressing out about it? So you have to convince yourself that something that you initially thought was really important at the time is really not important at all. Let it go kind of stuff. Mm. And I learned to do that. I, I, I trained myself to do that over the last year. So hardly anything bothers me anymore, you know, whereas before I'd stress about it. And then like the sleep yeah. thing, I just, so now I get more sleep. I, I don't get as much as the average person, but I get more than what I was getting, and, and, and I think that that really, really has helped me a lot, too. So you're going to start meditating, too, Dave? Well, you know, I don't, I don't go over the edge and eat crazy foods. I don't, I don't do a lot of the stuff that a lot of these other people do. I'm just an average Joe Schmo guy who just, you know, bangs out a day and goes to bed and wakes up and bangs out the next day. I don't do meditation. I don't do yoga. I don't do all this you know, acupuncture. <laughs> I don't. I don't do a lot of that stuff. I'm old school. I'm old school, right? Yeah. But it worked for me. You know, listen. I've been running for 50 years, right? Almost, and I've run 150,000 miles, 130 marathons, run across the country a couple of times. Blah blah blah. My knees are great. My you know, my body's fine. I'm 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 no worse for the wear. I mean, I'm running races now faster than I have, like I said, in the last 20 years. You know, so knock on wood. <laughs> Yeah, you look great. It's it's like uh, sort of a, a a rebirth for you. That's great. Yeah, but everyone can do it. That's the lesson. I'm not, this isn't. I'm not talking about this to to boast over me. This isn't about me. This is about everyone listening, saying that you know you can do it too. It's just you have to have the guts to make the commitment to do it. You know, you got to want to do it. And I'm telling you, uh, there's there's no better feeling in the world than to feel healthy, to raise your level of self-confidence and self-esteem. You can do anything once you have that back, you know. And yeah. um, so, you know, but you gotta, you got to work at it. And you got to just, hey, let's go down the beer. Hey, let's go eat, eat a lot of food and whatever. <laughs> so go ahead. You know, that, that's what you want to do. You have choices. I'm not suggesting anyone do anything they don't want to do. But if you want to live longer, live healthier, feel better, you know, compete harder, and and reverse things that you took 50 years to develop. Now, I, it took me 59 years to put myself in this position, and it took me less than a year to start chipping away to get rid of it. That's yeah. not bad. Yes. So did I hear you had um, you had a film crew following you around at uh, Kona? Yeah, NBC um, called me up back in February when I made the commitment to do Iron Man and said that they wanted to profile me for a lot of different reasons, you know, recovering from the bomb, recovering from the health scare, you know, all kinds of different storylines within the story, I guess. So they came out in April and followed me all throughout the marathon during the day and at night when I ran at night and stuff. And 
then they came and came to the hospital and when I did my stress tests and they were, you know, filming all of that and what that meant. And then the doctor giving me the green light and interviewing the cardiologist and all that. And then they interviewed the police commissioner in Boston and all this. And then, then I went out to Kona and, you know, they were following me the whole day in the race. So, you know, and in one sense it's flattering and, you know, you know, at the, at the end of the day, if the story can motivate people to kind of take care of themselves, it can save lives, it's all that kind of stuff. And it's worth it. Right. Yeah. But there is something to be said about, you know, having cameras in your face all the time and that, you know, what you say and how you act and what you look like and all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, it's yeah. fun, but there's a degree of anxiety when, when they're around. Yeah, I mean, you're not always looking your best at an iron bed, so. No, no. But that's the drama of it. That's what they want to see. They want to see you in agony, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they, they want to see you crawling across the finish line. So yeah. um, when is that, that going to be like a show or something? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an hour and a half show on the race. And it profiled, I think, three people, me and um, a woman whose husband uh, died in Afghanistan and she committed to help like wounded warriors or something and trained for Ironman and she has a whole story. And then I think they profiled uh, Opala Ono who did it too. So um, sure. he was like right next to me. And so we were, we got to be friends during the week and stuff. And uh, he may come around Boston someday, but anyway, so I think they, um, I think they followed him around all day too. I'm not sure. So, so it's right. November 15th, November, Saturday, November 15th at one thirty, from one thirty to three Eastern standard time. That's the show, the Ironman show. Yeah. All right. We'll have to we'll have to record that because that will be perfect for when you're doing the trainer rides. You know, those two hour <laughs> trainer rides in your there you your go. pain cave yeah, right. in the middle of the winter. That'll be perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm doing. You know, the, you, yeah. you know the rides I'm talking about. <laughs> of course, of course. I have my trainer downstairs. It's it's down there. I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me any uh yeah. you know, if you had any advice you want to leave people with something they can do right now to uh potentially save their lives i always used to have the mindset that when i worked out it was kind of like a selfish thing you know i wasn't spending time with my family or you know my kids because i was out running or doing whatever i was doing and now my philosophy on that has changed i actually think it's unselfish you know that we really have an obligation to take care of ourselves so that we don't burden others to have to take care of us, you know, because we failed at that. And then we put ourselves in a position where we can help other people too. So it's all about balance. It's all about just priorities, family first. And, you know, you have your job, you have your career, but then you have yourself and you, you have to carve out time for yourself. And don't, don't think that that's unselfish. Like you said before, you know, it's like, oh, you're real busy. We're caught up in everything. And we, you know, we're not, we're, we're not focused on ourselves. And at some point in time, you have to say, you know, I just turned 60, so I'm, I might be two-thirds done here, cooked, you know, so there's only so yeah. much left. And I certainly want to <laughs> I want to get the most out of it, and I want to, I don't want to be crawling and, and, you know, limping and be what they call a tilted runner going down the street. I want to be as strong and, and as healthy as I can. So that's, what I, that's my advice to people is um, the, the most important person in the world is yourself. Yep. And you can actually help people, other people, by yeah. taking care of yourself first. So that's it. That's great advice. All right, man. All right. I'll let you go. Okay. Thanks for the time. Okay, pal. Take care. All right. Bye. Tell me a good story to keep me warm by the campfire. The efficiency trap. Much of the material out there on getting things done focuses on doing more stuff in the available time. And this isn't always a good thing. You have to make sure you're actually doing the right stuff. And another bogus assumption by the holier-than-thou self-help spurts is that you can choose to radically change your life right now. Like, there's no in-between. And what scares me is that because of this, people get, they get scared away from change. They get scared away from risk. And they get scared away from entrepreneurial behaviors because they see it as an all-or-nothing proposition. In our current pop psychology, we build the wall too high. In trying to paint a great picture and tell a compelling story, we scare off the very audience that we profess to want to help. On the first topic, efficiency, 
Do you really want to do things faster? Why would you? You want to do things faster to create room in your life to do better things. Unfortunately, people miss the nuances in this drive to efficiency. It can't just be efficiency for efficiency's sake. Even if you are able to crush your way through your to-do list, where does that put you at the end of your day? Do you now have an extra hour? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to watch reruns of Law and Order on Netflix, or are you going to write the great American novel? I mean, if you can't answer that question, then why did you put the energy into finding another hour in your day? Unfortunately, I think most people embrace efficiency only so they can do more meaningless tasks. <laughs> Come on, we all love our meaningless tasks, don't we? I get a big hit of happy chemicals when I see I've invested an hour cleaning my inbox down to zero. Yay! Really? That's a bit like bailing out the ocean, isn't it? You need to look at your at your long term, and I don't want to use the word goals, but your long term purpose or desire. Where do you want to be in a year, two years, five years? And then you can back schedule some of those medium and longer term tasks into your day that support that view of where you're trying to get to. We all know the efficiency equation. You have to look at everything you do, everything you do every day for a week, and you log it. And then you look at each thing and you ask, should I be doing this at all? And then you eliminate the stuff you shouldn't be doing. And then you look at the stuff that doesn't require your special gifts. And that's the stuff you outsource. And then you're left with the value-added stuff that you like to do and you're good at. And you do that stuff, right? That's the efficiency equation. And if you take it a step further, how do you take those things that require your special gift and that you love to do, and how do you franchise those? Can you create leverage or organization around those things? People always want to outsource their inbox, but maybe you should be building a franchised organization around your craft or your art and pulling people in and creating leverage. But there I go again, scaring you. Doesn't it feel like no matter where you turn, somebody is holding up an example of some luminary rags-to-riches story Someone who radically changed their lives. Do you really have to radically change your lives to be happy? Do you really have to radically change your life to impact others? No, you don't. You can make a difference in your world just by incrementally changing your attitude within your current frame of reference. You can think like a leader. You can act with an attitude of abundance. You can act like an entrepreneur. Try it. Go into your 9-to-5 job and start doing random positive acts of entrepreneurialism and see what happens. Start coming up with better ideas that focus on longer-term systemic change and not just fighting today's fires. And come at it not with the attitude that something is broken and needs to be fixed. Come at it with the enthusiasm and positivity of the great opportunity and how you plan to start seizing it. Use your mind as a lens. Don't say, I'm not happy, or I'm bored. Instead, focus your mind on the big, real opportunities that exist in every mundane situation. Be the quiet voice of change in yourself, in your community, in your family, in your organization. Be unstoppable. Be the unstoppable, patient, happy momentum that steals the day from the grumpy and the small-minded. Look at your task list and add a few things to each day that are not urgent but are important. Those things that don't have to be done, but if they are done, they will make a great difference. Become known as the person who does these things, who shows up with these gifts. And that's a gift. That's a victory. And as you start to get momentum, who knows where it will go? Maybe you'll see your chance for the big change. You don't have to quit your job. You don't have to leave your family. You don't have to make the big radical change. You can make a difference in your world without becoming the change pariah. 
It is in the little things that you can make a big difference. And here's what I challenge you to do. Find a way to create 15 minutes in your day. Use that 15 minutes to work on your long-term purpose. You know, write 500 words in that book. Compose that poetry. Learn Mongolian. Read the classics. I don't care what it is. But it shouldn't involve Facebook, YouTube, or that thing that you do that pays the bills. Commit 15 minutes a day to something that is not urgent, but is important and long-term enabling. And see how that goes. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. And so it goes. It's a momentum thing, isn't it, my friends? If you can start, you can keep going, and soon repetition becomes habit, and habit becomes a body of work. I have to admit, it was hard to get this jump started again. But now we have the momentum. Now we have it. It should get easier, right? I just finished the book uh, Running with the Buffaloes. It documents a season of the Colorado University cross-country team. And it is the year that Adam Goucher won the NCAA meet, beating out Abdi Abdiraham and Bernard Lagat, among others. And what I found interesting was the was the training they went through. You know, these are twenty year old kids and they were running hundred plus mile weeks in singles, meaning once a day. Um, all through the summer and leading into the season and, and held that volume in the in the eighties and nineties right through the season. And as they came into the racing season, they layered on a bunch of high-quality anaerobic work as well. Really interesting. It really shows you what you can get out of your machine if you do the work. On the flip side, most of these guys were injured. Um, Adam, he made the Olympic trials but ended up having to retire early because of his injuries. Abdi, Abdi's still out there. He ran the Olympic marathon with Meb in 2012, and he DNF'd. Uh, Adam's wife, Kara, she's still out there. She came in 11th to Shalane's 10th in London. And it was a good book if you're a running geek, and it was readable in the sense that it has an actual narrative to it versus just the technical bits. So I raced uh, the last weekend. I raced the Mill Cities Relay last Sunday with my club, and I had a great race. I warmed up first. I ran uh, two and a half miles at around an 8.05 pace for my warm-up. And then I that, that allowed me to kind of push hard in my leg. And I ran a 9.5-mile leg. And it was a sub-7.30. I was under seven-minute miles at some point. So it fe- I felt pretty good about it. And I don't race that much anymore. So it's hard for me to gauge my fitness. Next week, uh, December 21st, Sunday... Brian and I were putting on the second annual Groton Marathon. Remember that self-supported run I did last year with Brian? Well, we're doing it again this year. It's a self-supported 26.2-mile run around my hometown of Groton, Massachusetts. No big thing, just a bunch of us out having a long run, having fun. And you folks are more than welcome to come and run all or part of it with us. Shoot me a note if you're interested. I was going to go down to Atlanta this weekend for the Jeff Galloway 13.1. But you know what? My life, I I made a call on it, and my life is just too busy to pull it off. I've been spending too many weekends on the road this fall, and I'm a bit fried, so I decided I would spend the weekend catching up on sleep instead. I have, believe it or not, a cruise coming up in January. Yeah, a cruise. We'll see how I can navigate that, <laughs> navigate, get it, and uh, and my training at the same time. I'm going to have to miss my favorite New Year's Day race, the Hangover Classic up in Salisbury with the ocean plunge in the Atlantic Ocean. I love that race. Going to miss it. My book, my new book, the How to Qualify for Boston, How to Qualify for the Boston Marathon in 12 Weeks, that's in editing. Thank you for all the inquiries. I'm shooting to get a promotional copy out by the end of the calendar year, and you you folks can all feel free to help me promote it, and then I'll try to get a 
a launch, uh, you know, a final copy, a release out in February sometime. It's been fun writing all this stuff down, but it's challenging as well because I really don't have room <laughs> for more projects in my life, but I have to follow my own advice and get something done. Uh, the Groton Marathon will be my 48th marathon. Currently, I'd love to find another race in January or February to be my 49th marathon. I'm thinking about Phoenix. So I can run Boston this year as my 50th. It's got a nice symmetry to it, right? And as for Boston, yes, I got a charity number again, and I'll be running for the Hoyts again, even though Dick has retired from Boston. I'm not sure if someone else is going to be pushing Ricky this year or not. I'll have to find that out. So those are my plans, as nebulous as they are for now. And remember to celebrate every day and live in the now, because this could very well be as good as it gets. And I'll see you out there. You can reach me, if you need to, at my website, which is due for an overhaul, www.runrunlive.com, and on all the social media platforms as C-Y-K-T Russell. Cheers. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.